Shalom, and welcome to Via Hafta Yisrael, a Hebrew phrase which means you shall love Israel. We hope you'll stay with us for the next 30 minutes as our teacher, Dr. Baruch, shares his expository teaching from the Bible. Dr. Baruch is the senior lecturer at the Zera Avraham Institute based in Israel. Although all courses are taught in Hebrew at the Institute, Dr. Baruch is pleased to share this weekly address in English. To find out more about our work in Israel, please visit us on the web at loveisrael.org. That's one word, loveisrael.org. Now, here's Baruch with today's lesson. Our God is the one and only true God. And we see in the passage of Scripture that we're going to be studying this evening that God reveals Himself beyond all comprehension. God is able to do all things. He is all-powerful, forever wise. And therefore, we as human beings, we need to submit obey and seek his influence in our life. When we do that, God will supply to us that which brings about victory. And the only way that we can experience victory is through God's supernatural guidance, his power, his wisdom that he imparts to us. But if we don't recognize him in the proper way, then God is going to be absent in moving in our life, empowering us, giving us that wisdom and intelligence and knowledge. So you and I have a decision to make. Do we truly believe that God, the God of Scripture, is the one true living God, Him and Him alone? And do we seek His influence, His guidance in our life? And the only way to be sincere about this is to take hold of his word and apply it to our life. A very simple principle, but one that is rarely practiced, even by most who call themselves believers. Well, take out your Bible and look with me to the book of Isaiah and chapter 40. We began this chapter last week. This chapter of significance prophetically, speaking about the comfort of God. And now we're going to move into the second half, where God speaks about his uniqueness, that he is all-powerful, all-knowledge. And therefore, we, if we're going to arrive at where we want to be, that is, in the kingdom of God, and do so victoriously, then we are ultimately dependent upon him for all things. So here's the question. Do we live, behave, act in a way that demonstrates our dependence upon him? So look with me to where we left off, Isaiah chapter 40, and we're going to begin in verse 12. Now, many of these verses are difficult to translate. The, the Hebrew is specific, but when we render it into another language, it's hard sometimes to do so in a smooth way. So bear with me as we look at this passage of Scripture, beginning with verse 12. It speaks here about God, who is unique. It says, who 
has measured in his hand waters. Now, the implication is God has measured all the waters on the face of the earth. And he's done so in the palm of his hand. Now, two things are, are mentioned here that we need to derive from this first part of the verse. First of all, it is difficult to hold on to water for us. It moves out of our hands. We can't hold it very well. But God, it's not a problem for him. In fact, God has no problems. Secondly, the fact that he can measure the waters and the implication, as I said, all the waters of the earth in the palm of his hand speaks about his greatness, that he is beyond measure, but he easily is able to measure. And sometimes this concept of measuring relates to understanding. God understands fully all things, and here the emphasis is upon the waters. Secondly, it says, and the heavens with, and some will say breath, but it's, it's a word that speaks about the measurement of a finger, the width of a finger. So for us, this would be a very small measurement, but for God, with his hand, he can measure great sums. In fact, he can measure the heavens and that he measures them. And this word means to regulate them, meaning to put them in proper order, direct them. And he measures them, it says, with, and this word is a third part. So it speaks about the vastness of God, that he uses a relatively small measurement from his standpoint in order to measure the, the width of the heavens. And then it says, and all, all the, the dust of the earth, all the dust, he's able to measure as well in this third part. And he weighs with a balance meaning that God, in this word for balance, the first word, speaks about, about balancing it in the sense of measuring it in a way of levelness, that God can check the heights of the mountains and the hills with its scales. So God, speaking about creation, God understands it all. When it measures it, when he directs it, when he balances it, it all speaks about God having perfect knowledge of all of his creation. Now, we lack greatly in that. God does not. And therefore, it, it tells us that we need to be individuals to turn to God for wisdom. And the problem is this. More and more in our modern society, a society that thinks that we have been, been perfectly educated, that we know almost everything. Well, the fact of the matter is we know very little about creation. Over and over, things are being discovered, which simply the Bible has confirmed 
long time ago. And we'll see one example of this in a moment. Let's move on to verse 2. Who, and this is the same word for regulating something, directing something. He says, who directs the, the spirit of the Lord, meaning this. Is there someone other than God that directs the spirit of the Lord? Does he need counsel? And obviously the answer is there is no one. He does not need counsel. And therefore it ends this verse by saying, and most Bibles, they do not translate a very simple Hebrew word, the word ish, which is man. And what it says here, a man who is his counselor. God does not have such a one. So there is not a man that is his counselor that, that informs him, that gives knowledge to him. God is not, not dependent upon any other. He has no counselor. There is no one that directs anything that relates to God and his work. Verse 14, it asks the question, whom counsels him? Who gives him knowledge, gives him instructions, and who will, will teach him? And once again, the answer is there is no one. No one that can supply anything to God because God needs nothing. God lacks nothing. Not in any resources of any type and not in any knowledge or counsel. Secondly, it says, in the way of justice, someone will, will teach him knowledge in the way of understanding, someone will inform him, and all of this implies no. God does not have need for any type of instruction, learning, someone giving him understanding. God is a source of all wisdom, knowledge, and understanding. Verse, verse 15. Now, in verse 15, it speaks about the nations, and that God is adequately, fully acquainted with all things, all nations, all peoples, and his creation. Notice what it says. Behold, the nations are like a drip in a bucket, as the dust upon the scales are, are thought of, meaning this. If there is one who is measuring something, and usually measuring something is for the purpose of ascertaining its value in order that someone can make a payment. So if there's a piece of dust upon the, the scale, no one's going to be concerned with that. No one sees significance. And the message is compared to the greatness of God. The, the nations, humanity, does not have any significance in comparison to him. So behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket. As the dust 
upon a scale is, is thought of. Behold, islands are like a, a, a thin measurement that can be tossed, meaning that all these islands all around, and some would say that this may refer to the continents because all land is ultimately surrounded by, by water. That God is like dust, like something that has been, been made very thin and small. God is able to cast it. Simply another piece of, of an example of the greatness of God, that he's beyond creation. Verse 16, and to Lebanon. Now, Lebanon was known for its forests, its great amount of trees. And he says in verse 16, and Lebanon, there's not enough, and the implication is to burn. Now, he's talking here about making a sacrifice to God. God is great. And even if you would take all the trees of Lebanon, it would not generate enough, enough heat, enough fire for all the, the animals that they're not sufficient for a burnt offering. So for what God really deserves, the type of offering that is appropriate to him, you could take all the trees in Lebanon and all the animals, and it would not be sufficient in order to make a proper offering, sacrifice, a burnt offering unto God. So over and over it speaks about how God is beyond, that he transcends creation. He's not part of it. We don't look at creation and, and see that creation altogether adds up to God. That is a false teaching, a heresy. God transcends this. Look now to verse, verse 17. We see, all the nations are as nothing before him. And then they have a different word for nothing, meaning zero. For Ephes, which is nothing and emptiness, is, is this thought compared to him. So if you add up all the nations, they are as nothing, as zero. As, as of no significance unto him, compared to him. Verse 18. For to whom can you liken God? And then it says, and to what is a likeness of that which is of his value? Now, it's a word for for arranging something in an appropriate manner, arranging something that is correct for a purpose. And when it comes to measuring the likeness of God, putting something that's, that's similar to him, there is no measurement, there is no worth, it cannot be done. Verse 19. Now, 19 speaks about the craftsman who has molded a, a statue. Now, it's speaking here about man 
and futile attempts to worship. And here we're speaking about idolatry. So it speaks about one who is a craftsman, an artesian, and he has made a mole for a statue. Or we can give another example, a goldsmith that flattens out, meaning he melts his gold. Or a silversmith that as well makes uh, silver into chains. So it's all of this futile attempt of man in order to, to worship God, ascribe something to God. We have another example of this in verse 20 where it says, the one who is impoverished, one who is very poor, who has experienced uh, harsh things in his life that has left him empty. But nevertheless, this one who has nothing, he wants to make an offering, a truma, to God. So he's not able to choose, as we saw in the previous verse, that which is gold of silver in order to mold out something. So he takes wood, but even in his poverty, he takes good wood, wood that, that is not uh, rotten and will not uh, become rotten. He chooses. He seeks for himself a wise uh, worker, a wise craftsman or a skilled craftsman in order to prepare a, a statue that will not fall down. Now, what we've seen in the last two verses, an example of humanity in darkness that nevertheless understands the need to worship, that it's right to worship, and does what is possible for them with the limitations to try to ascribe some type of worship to God. Now, it's inadequate, and the message is this. All human attempts to worship God fail. They fall far short of what is appropriate, what is right. And what God's going to be teaching us is it's only, and hear this carefully, it is only when we respond to his instruction, not when we, in the imaginations of our, our minds, when we do things that we think right according to our heart, what we deem as, as appropriate, all of this is going to be rejected. It is idolatry. It is not true worship. It is only when we make ourselves dependent upon God's instruction, His revelation, then and only then do we begin to approach God in a way that he finds acceptable. We're dependent upon his revelation. Verse, verse 21. In order to, to show the inadequacy of our attempts, he says here, he says, surely you know, surely you have heard, surely it's been told to you from the beginning. Surely you understand. And then it says the foundations of the earth, meaning from the foundations of the earth, meaning a long time you've understood this, you've heard this. 
Is this, is this correct? That we as human beings have known God for long time, understood that we have heard the truth? And the answer is, no, we have not. We do not have proper understanding in and of ourselves. We're not in the position as God is to see things correctly. Once again, what he's laying the foundation of is to tell us that we are dependent upon his revelation. Notice what he says in verse verse 22. The one who sits, now it is a participle. Literally, we should translate it, the one who sits upon, and pay attention to this next phrase, chug arts. Now, the word chug is a circle. And this speaks to the fact, now, even though the scripture speaks about the four corners of the earth, when it speaks this, it's not speaking about corners, meaning the earth is flat. It's simply speaking about the four directions that we can go, north, south, east, and west. So it speaks of directions, those four directions. But here's a great example of where the Word of God reveals this is Isaiah. He wrote this nearly 2,800 years ago. And he knew, based upon the word that he chose, that the earth is round. It's not flat. So it's very significant, this word, this circumference, as some Bibles translates it, but it speaks about the fact that God, notice what it says, the one who sits upon the, the circle of the earth and its inhabitants, compared to God, are like grasshoppers. For he is the one that stretches forth as a, a curtain to heavens, and he stretches them as a tent for, for dwelling, sitting in. So over and over when we look at this, it speaks in many different ways of the greatness of God. Realize that. He is great, and God in his goodness has revealed to us a, a degree of revelation. What we need to know in order to approach him, to serve him, to worship him, to experience him, we're fully dependent upon him for all things. Verse 23, Hanoten. Again, a participle. The one who sets or gives, it speaks about God positioning, putting in a location. And he says, the one who sets, and the next word is the nobleman. These who have uh, both prestige and honor because of wealth usually and because of position. They are leaders of places. So he sets these individuals, these leaders, he sets them as nothing compared to him is the implication. And the judges of the earth, they are as tohu. 
This is a word for confusion, that which lacks order, that lacks significance. He makes them as nothing, as insignificant. So God, over and over in this section, he reveals his greatness and the inadequacy of human beings, even those human beings that humans look to as having great significance, those who have achieved, those who rule, those who reign. Nothing are they compared to God. Verse, verse 24. Now, in verse 24, we have a unique construction. It's the word af, which is even, or, or such, or but, and then the negative follows. And what it's saying simply here is, is that God could have done greater things, but in a very small way, he has, has planted, that he has sown, that, that, that the, the stumps have taken root in the land, and also it says that, that he can, can blow them, meaning that God is in control. When we look at his creation in this world, it's, it's not something that, that shows the maximum that God can do. It's something that he has done in small way. That which he has planted, that which he has sown, that which has taken root, the, the, the stock which has taken root, all of this, God is able to simply blow away if he chooses to. And he says that, that it will dry up these things, they will dry up. And a storm, God can cause a storm which, which will, will lift up this as stubble, meaning this. If you have something that has been burned up to ashes, it's very easy for the wind to take them away. So God, what he has created, it is easy for him to, to lift it up to move it away, for him to blow it into being no more. So this creation does not reflect the fullness of God's ability. It is small compared to the greatness of God. So once again, we see many different expressions that Isaiah is giving in this passage to speak about the greatness of God. Verse, verse 25. He says something similar that he said earlier in regard to likening him. It says, and to whom is he likened? Literally puts it in the first person. To whom do you liken me that I should be compared? Says the Holy One. So God says, is there someone that you can liken me to? Someone that I can be compared to? For this is what God will say. Verse 26. Lift up upon high your eyes and see. Meaning, behold something. Look and have understanding. He says, who it is 
that has created these things. And the one who brings them out with number, and what is he bringing out? Their host, meaning the host of, of heaven, the armies of God. Now, the armies of God are massive. And what it's saying is he has created all things. He can bring them out in the right time, in the proper order, because it says, and all of them, by name, he will call. And in the abundance of, of strength, and another word for strength of power. And then it says, again, ish, a man is not missing. Meaning of all of his armies, that heavenly hosts, God names them, he calls them by that name, he brings them out, and none is lacking, none is missing. Everything with God is complete. There is no imperfections, nothing that, that is missing, that, that is not present according to what he wants it to be. So God, he's great, he's unique, and if we don't experience him, if we're not led by him, if we're not doing what he has created us to do, the outcome is going to be disastrous. God with ease can bring, we saw this in the previous verse, can bring about destruction and annihilation with quite, quite a degree of ease. Verse, verse 27. Now, in light of that, why do we think that we can escape God's judgment? If we do not submit to God, if we do not obey God, if we're not making ourselves dependent upon the revelation, the instruction of God, why do we think that we're going to escape judgment? He's told us here that it's with ease that he can bring annihilation to his creation. And therefore, it's not logical, it's not, not proper that we read in verse 27 what Israel is doing. He says, why does Yaakov, Jacob, should say? Why do you say, O Jacob? Why do you speak, O Israel? And what are they, they saying? that my way is hidden from the Lord. Now, the my refers to Israel. He's speaking specifically to his people. He says, why do you say that your way is hidden from the Lord? That, that he's unaware of this, that he's not concerned with this, that we can do what we want and get away with it perhaps, or simply our needs and what we're experiencing, God's not knowledgeable of. This is improper. He goes on to say, And from the God of, of my justice, that, that he says he has passed, meaning he has ignored the justice that, that Israel is seeking. God has not done that. This is a false characterization. If it's not happening, there's a reason for it. Time will, will manifest 
the, the sovereignty and the omniscience of God to all creation. Now look at verse 28. He goes back to something that he says earlier. And when he said it earlier, if we go back to that verse, look at verse 21, where we read, Surely you know, surely you have heard, surely it's been told to you from the beginning. Surely you have understood from the foundations of the earth. Now the implication is they haven't. He's mocking them. And in a similar way, look now to verse 28. Same language. Surely you have known. If not, you have heard that the God of forever, the God of eternity, and we could understand it, the God of the kingdom, he is the Lord, the one who creates the ends of the earth. God, now what it says here, surely you, you've known or you've heard God reveals this that he is the eternal God, the kingdom God, and that he has created things for the end. Things are coming to a conclusion. And the question we have to ask ourselves is, are we ready for this end? Isaiah is challenging people. God is going to do something. He is going to blow judgment. He is going to put judgment, wrath, upon this world. Everything that is not reflecting his glory, everything that does not reflect his purpose, God is going to bring destruction upon. He is going to annihilate. So the question is, nothing has been hidden from God. God knows all things. It's simply a matter of time when God's going to put things in order. You say, things aren't in order? God put them initially. When we look at creation, we see something. God created the heavens and the earth, and we have that same expression, tohu ve vohu, meaning what? Meaning that which lacks God's order. This was creation initially. And what did God do? God puts it into order to the extent that in the end, at the end of these six days of creation, what do we have? We have tov me'od, very good. Everything reflected the purposes of God. And what we find here is that God is going to bring an end to creation. A creation, and here's the important point, the creation that was corrupted by man. Man brought disorder to God's creation. How did he do that? By sin. God created all things, tohu vevohu, lacking order. God showed something. His order is brought about through his spirit and through his word. God spoke, the spirit moved, and things became exceedingly good. That is until sin. That's why Paul tells us that creation groans for redemption, for God to put it into order. And therefore, look at our verse, verse 28. He says, surely you have known. If not, you, you've heard that you've been taught this concerning 
the eternal God, the God of the kingdom. The reason why I say the God of the kingdom, this word olam, is a word that speaks of, of all the world or all the time, things in its fullness, in its, its entirety, and ultimately, it's speaking about that which is forever. And we're speaking about the kingdom. So the eternal God, the kingdom God, the Lord, he's created the ends of the earth. And he says, he does not uh, faint. He does not wear out. And there is no end of investigating his understanding, meaning we can't understand him in and of ourselves. He's beyond human comprehension to understand the fullness of God. And God doesn't faint, he doesn't wear out, and he is beyond us. Verse, verse 29. This same God, who's all these things, he loves you. And he is willing to move, act in your life. It says, this God, who's beyond our understanding, it says, this one gives, gives to the faint power. Those who are, are coming to the end and collapsing, God is willing, able, desiring to give to them power. And those who do not have strength, he will multiply in abundance. And it's another word for, for power or strength. That in an abundant manner, God will give. And then he says, realize, in the natural, even the young men, they, they become tired or they faint. These young men, a different word, the first one is nari for young men. Then we have the word bechori, also a synonym for young men. They, they become exhausted and they fail, utterly will fail. So the young men, they faint and grow tired. And the young men, they will utterly fail. Why? In and of themselves. But, and this is very important, look at our last verse, verse 31. But, in contrast to the ones who are natural. Now, he picks, picks, he picks here individuals who are young, who have strength and such. But, but measured up to what God's going to do. They're going to faint. They're going to wear out. They're not going to be able to endure. But those who, and notice what it says, those that many Bibles say wait, but it's really not just those who are waiting, but those who are hoping. The ones who hope in the Lord. God is going to bring a change to. And realize the word hope has to do with, with the promises of God. Hope is rooted in not what I just wish there to be. That is not biblical hope. Biblical hope is when we claim the promises of God by faith according to the, the 
standards of God, the structure of God, the order of God, the, the, the message of God, that we hope for this because God has promised it and we are in a covenant relationship. It is those, those ones in a covenant relationship that can expect. They will wait, they will persevere because they have this hope. So the ones who hope in the Lord, they are going to be changed, transformed. They are going to be transformed with power. And it says here, they will rise up with the, the pinion, the, the, we could say the organ, the wings of an eagle. And they will run and they will not wear out or grow tired. They will go and they will not faint. So it's all rooted in those whose hope is in the Lord. Turning to him. Because it's only with him that we can go past the end, that we can go into a new reality. What is that reality? A kingdom reality. Now, let me close by saying this. We need to remember the first part of chapter 40. This one that speaks about comfort, which is a messianic word. It is only the Messiah that gives us comfort that brings things to a, a state where God is well-pleased. Only Messiah can put us into a place, a state of being where God is comforted. And instead of destroying us, he will bless us. Instead of coming to our end, he will bring us into the promises of God, the blessings of God. That's what hope, when it's rooted in the Word of God, produces. So chapter 40 begins a significant section in the prophecy of Isaiah that gives us insight concerning the person and the work of Messiah and what he, by his deeds, are going to produce for those who have a biblical hope rooted in a covenantal relationship that was established through redemption. This is the message of this last part of Isaiah's prophecy. Well, I'll close with that until next week when we press on and we enter into chapter 41. Until then, shalom from Israel. Well, we hope you will benefit from today's message and share it with others. Please plan to join us each week at this time and on this channel for our broadcast of loveisrael.org. Again, to find out more about us, please visit our website, loveisrael.org. There you will find articles and numerous other lectures by Baruch. These teachings are in video form. You may download them or watch them in streaming video. Until next week, may the Lord bless you in our Messiah Yeshua, that is, Jesus, as you walk with Him. Shalom from Israel. Thank you.